I want to begin with a verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which is a very important truth that we must never, never doubt. It says here, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, let me paraphrase it like this. The Lord says, I've got plans for your life. We don't know those plans, but God knows. I know the plans I have for you. And those plans are for your welfare. That means for something that's going to be good for you. Not that's going to cause you problems or a calamity, but which will give you a future and a hope. Now tell me something. If you really believe that, that God had a plan for your life which is going to be the best possible thing that you can ever plan. Wouldn't you want to find it at all costs and wouldn't you want to submit your will, say, Lord, I want to fulfill that. Everything else is not going to be anywhere near what you have planned for my life. Because I'll tell you, see, God knows all the pitfalls and dangers along the way. When we make a plan for our life, we don't know. When we go to some place, we don't know what dangers there are over there. When we work with some people, we don't know what dangers there are over there. But God knows the whole future. Imagine uh, having somebody who knows the whole future plan your life. I can't understand how anybody would not want that. That shows how even so many believers, they're, they're really, when it comes to planning their life, they are atheists. When it thinks there comes things that cause anxiety in their life, they are atheists. I'm absolutely convinced that a lot of believers act like atheists when some crisis comes. Their reaction is exactly the same. A crisis comes in the life of this believer, a crisis comes in the life of this atheist. Both of them, the reaction is the same, as if there is no God. And once you realize that God loves us as He loved Jesus and plans our life exactly like He planned the life of Jesus. He's got a future for us. and I know the plans I have for you. But if you want to see that plan fulfilled in your life, verse 12, you've got to come and call upon me. And you've got to come and pray to me. It's not going to happen automatically. People who don't pray to God and don't ask God for it, it doesn't work. There's a condition. Every promise, there's a condition. The condition is you come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And when you search for my plan with all your heart, you'll find it. Verse 13. Please remember these verses in verse 14. I'll be found to you, found by you, verse 14. I'll restore your fortunes. It's a wonderful promise of God there. And it applies to us. Jeremiah was the prophet proclaiming the new covenant. He, the prophecies about the new covenant come in Jeremiah. And so there's a particular message for us in, in this book when he talks about it. Okay, now when you come into the new covenant, the, to the New Testament rather, 
we read the fulfillment of that. If you turn to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, God loves us as He loved Jesus Christ. I've often said the greatest truth in the whole Bible, to me anyway, is John 17, 23. God loves you as He loved Jesus. John 17, 23. Never forget it. If you're a disciple, if you're not a disciple, then I don't know. But if you're a disciple, because that prayer in John 17 is not for every Tom, Dick and Harry. The prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 was for his disciples. He said in the middle of that prayer, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these whom you have given me. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, then that promise in John 17, 23 is true. God loves you exactly as he loved Jesus. Some of you may not be familiar with that, so maybe I should start there. Let's turn to John 17. You know, I find that there are always new people coming to the church, number one. And secondly, there are children growing up in our church who are now coming to hear and understand what they could not hear one year ago. So I have to repeat what I said one year ago for their benefit and for the benefit of people who come newly. So those who know it well, it's a good refresher course. And I want you to see in John 17 his prayer. Uh, verse 9 I ask on their behalf I do not ask on behalf of the world but on behalf of those you have given me you know that God the Father has given us to Jesus if we are his disciples and others in the world he says I'm not praying for them it's very clear. You may think it is more spiritual to, pe- pe- to pray for all those people in the world, but Jesus says, no. I'm praying for my disciples. And he goes on to say, these whom you have given me, verse 23, I am in them and you are in me, the Lord says to the Father, that they may be perfect in unity so that the world in which they are witnesses will know one thing, Two things actually. One, that the Father sent Jesus to save the world. And second, the world must know that you loved them just as you loved me. So when I'm a witness to the world, I have to witness to the world two things. One, that the Father sent Jesus into the world to be the Savior of the world. And secondly, though it looks so arrogant, to show the world that the Father loves me just like he loved Jesus. If I'm a disciple. Now if I'm not a disciple, then of course... That verse does not apply to me. He said, I don't pray for the world. I pray for these whom you have given me. Those were his disciples. So the first thing is to be a disciple. And if I'm a disciple, my privileges are amazing. You know, like there are certain clubs in the world. If you're a member of that club, you get amazing privileges. But if you're not a member of the world, sorry, you don't get it. Even in airlines and all, there are you get a certain number of miles when you travel and you become a member of certain privileged part of that airline and then you get certain privileges you get seats and all which others won't get it's like that in God's kingdom too if you're a disciple there are certain privileges 
If not, God loved the whole world, but the disciples have something special. So, let me go back to Luke 14 to emphasize, I never get tired of repeating to people what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is one who follows Jesus. And in Luke 14, 25 to 34, 35, 25 to 35, you see the clearest passage in the whole Gospels where Jesus explains what it means to be a disciple. Large crowds, Luke 14, 25, were following him. Now when large crowds come today to a church, what most people think of is, let's pass the offering bag around. But that's not what Jesus thought of. He never passed an offering bag when he saw large crowds. He said, I've got to tell these people, don't waste your time following me because you've got to pay a price if you want to follow me. And so he says, if you come to me and you don't hate, verse 26, you don't hate your father and mother, you don't hate your wife and children, you don't hate your brothers and sisters, and you don't even hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't say such people will be sort of second class disciples. There is no second class. Either you're a disciple or you're not a disciple. So what did Jesus mean when he said hate father and mother? Because in another place he says honor your father and mother. And the word of God says love your wife. And here it says you've got to hate your wife. The word of God says love your brothers and sisters. Here he says hate your brothers and sisters. Both are true. So we need to understand what this means. So if you compare this passage with what Jesus said, you know, sometimes... We don't understand scripture in one passage. Compare it with a similar passage elsewhere. So turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Similar words. And there we compare this passage to that passage. We understand it. And Matthew 10, 37. We just saw it a little while ago. Matthew 10, 37. We saw verse 36. A man's enemies will be the members of his own family. Matthew 10, 37. This is similar to hating father and mother. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Or son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So when you put both verses together, you understand what he meant by saying hate your father, mother, son, daughter, wife, etc. It's a question of compared to your love for Jesus, your love for that them is so small that it's, it's almost like hatred. The best illustration I've always used is your love for the, your father, mother, wife, son, daughter is like the light of the stars. Is there light there? Yes. Do you love them? Of course you love them. You love your father, your mother, your wife, your son, your daughter. It's light. Light of the stars. But the moment the sun rises in the morning, it's noonday position, where, where are the stars? The stars haven't been obliterated. They're not destroyed. They are there, but you can't see them. What you could see so clearly in the night, you can't see now. So when you think of that star, love for my father, another star, love for my mother, another star, love for my wife, love for my son, daughter, where are they now? It's all gone. Because love for Jesus, the bright sun has come so bright. Now, if it is darkness again, the sun has set, your love for Jesus has waned and become less and less and less and less and less and less. Then you see the stars again. 
Uh, I love my father, I love my mother, I love my son. I'm going to please them, I'm going to do what is good for them. Because the sun is set. And you know then that the sun has set in your life. From there I know when the sun is shining in my life and when the sun is not shining in my life. When Jesus Christ is Lord of everything and when He's not Lord. And it says your own life as well. It's not just father, mother, son, daughter, wife. Your own life. And that is the most difficult to make it disappear like the star. See, my love for myself is also a star there. We all love ourselves. But he says, in love for Jesus, even that star must disappear. That means I don't do what pleases myself anymore. And that's the meaning of the next sentence. You've got to carry your cross. You know, I'll never forget, years ago in Bangalore, there was an interdenominational gathering of some leaders, leaders of different Christian churches. They came together, and I was also there. And they broke up into groups, and the leader of that who organized that meeting said, today we are going to discuss what does it mean to take up the cross every day and follow Jesus. So you, we sat in little groups and everybody had to come back with their findings after about 15 minutes. What does it mean to take up the cross every day? And the leader said, I'll read out the summary of what every group decided. And I was absolutely amazed. That man said, the sum up of all these groups is we really don't know what it means to take up the cross. Well, at least they were honest. <laughs> they don't know. You mean Jesus told us something which we cannot know? We don't want to know. We don't want to know. That's more honest. Because it means death to myself. Death to love for myself is killed. And my father and mother come below Jesus. My wife and son and daughter come below Jesus. And my job comes below. Everything comes below Jesus Christ. That's what I don't want. And that's why I say I don't know what the cross is. We don't want to face up to it and God withholds from us that understanding. But I believe that is the main reason why so many Christians, even after 15, 20 years of being Christians, they've not made any progress. They moved about one inch, one inch from where they were when they started. And sometimes they go back, minus one inch. Because this fundamental truth they have not accepted. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. Then you are not following Jesus at all. And the third condition, the three conditions, one is, I love Jesus more than all my loved ones on earth, number one. The second is, I love Jesus more than my own life, which is taking up the cross. And the third is, verse 33, that I love Jesus more than my possessions. See, possessions are those things that possess us. If your house possesses you, it's your possession. There's a difference between having something and possessing something. The Lord does not stop us from having things. He gives us many things to have. You can have your own house in your own name, your car in your own name, you can have bank account in your own name, you can have savings accounts and shares and all that in your own name, that's fine. But they should not possess you so much that Christ is obliterated. There's a saying that you can take a coin 
and put it so close to your eye that even you can't even see the sun. It depends on how close you put it. <laughs> if you put it far away from you, you can see the sun. But if you put that coin, two coins, so close to your eyes, even you can't even see the sun. That's an illustration of how things in the world can become so close to us that even Jesus gets blotted out. He takes a secondary place. And that is the main reason why many people are not disciples. Then, all that you read in John 17 does not apply to you. God does not love you as he loved Jesus. Sorry to say that, but uh, a lot of people take that and say, Oh, wonderful, God loves me as he loved Jesus. But for whom is that? See if the check is in your name before you go and deposit it in the bank. Otherwise, the bank will return it and say, Hey, this check is not in your name. How can we put it into your account? You're not a disciple, so it doesn't apply to you. Does God bless you in other ways? Oh, sure. Do you know who all God blesses? I'll tell you. Turn financially and in other ways. Matthew 5. All the people whom God blesses. You have to fall into one of these categories to be blessed by God. There are two categories. If you fall into either category, you'll be blessed by God. Matthew 5 and verse 45. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun. He's talking in those days everybody was a farmer. Farmers, almost most people were farmers. They had fields. And farmers need two things, sun and rain. Those are the main things farmers need. So which farmer will get the sun and the rain? You have to be either evil or good. That's all. You'll get the sun. And you've got to be either righteous or unrighteous, you'll get the rain. Do you qualify? The Lord tells the whole world, if you're either evil or good, I'll make the sunrise on your field. If you're either righteous or unrighteous, I will send the rain upon your field. Do you qualify? Sure. Material blessings? God sends it on crooked businessmen. He sends it on terrorists. He sends it on cheaters and deceivers and evil rulers of countries who become extremely wealthy, swindling the money of the country. Financially, God blesses them. So, financial blessing is not a mark of God's blessing. Because if you go by that, Jesus was not blessed. Jesus was not the richest person in the world. If financial blessing depended on how spiritual you are, then Jesus should have been the biggest multi-millionaire in the world. And next to him should have been the Apostle Paul. But Paul says there are times when we don't even have enough warm clothing for ourselves. The most godly people in the New Covenant were not very wealthy. The Old Testament was a time of material blessing. Oh, there you read about Abraham was so rich and David was so rich and many people, Joseph was so rich. They were godly people, but they were under the Old Testament. They did not have what we have, the Holy Spirit. So, I remember hearing a story of a Sunday school teacher telling the children the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he says about the rich man, every day he had fancy, a lot of food, and enjoyed himself in this palatial home and all that. 
and the your poor Lazarus was lying there like a beggar at his gate and he wouldn't even send any food to him that's why he went to hell his faith did not manifest itself in good works and Lazarus was there and then this little teacher said now children you know what happened both of them died and the rich man went straight to hell and he was burning there and Lazarus went straight to heaven so children who do you want to be like? Like the rich man or Lazarus? And some children are very smart because their parents are clever. So one child said, I want to be like the rich man on earth and like Lazarus after I die. <laughs> Can you beat that answer? <laughs> but do you know the number of believers who want to be like that? I'm not saying you have to be poor to be a believer. All I'm trying to say is to get material blessing and health you don't need holiness. You don't need to be righteous. You don't need to be good. You can be evil and unrighteous and God blesses you with material blessings. And you see plenty of evidence of that in the world around. You see the crooked businessmen who prosper, the crooked rulers of countries who prosper, so don't think because you prosper financially or materially or because you've got good health that is a mark of God's blessing. I believe there's one mark of God's blessing. I've been convinced about that for many years that you become more Christ-like every year. As a year goes by you become a little more like Jesus Christ, a little more merciful to others, a little more kind in your attitude, a little more controlled in your speech. Not perfect, but a little better than last year. You know, just like uh, you ask a child, son, which class are you in? I'm in the fourth grade. Where were you last year? Third grade. Ah, good. I don't expect you to jump to tenth grade in one year. No. I'm glad you moved from third grade to fourth grade. What if that boy said, I'm in the second grade this year? You mean you went back from third to second? That doesn't happen in schools, but it does happen with some believers, I'll tell you. I've seen it. They don't just fail, they get demoted. Isn't that sad? And they're prospering, and they're healthy, and they think that's a mark of God's blessing. It is not. I know the plans I have for you, the Lord says. That's what he read in Jeremiah. Plans for your welfare, to give you a future and a hope, not just for 70 years on earth, but for all eternity. And the wise man is one who plans for the whole future. I sometimes use this illustration. You know, a lot of people from India go abroad to other countries, uh, you know, where they earn much more money, but then they keep their Indian citizenship because finally they want to come and retire in India. So imagine a man who's earned millions and millions and millions of dollars which can, gets converted into 75 times that when you get going to rupees and there's a huge amount of money. And imagine if this man with all this amount of money he passes through Bombay and he spends all that money in about one day and then he goes to his hometown in say Bangalore 
and lives as a beggar on the streets for the next 25 years. What would you call such a man? What a fool you were. You earned all those millions of rupees and you spent it in one day in Bangalore, in in Bombay. And you didn't realize you got to spend 25 years in Bangalore for the rest of your life. You didn't have anything to live here. You're a fool and an idiot, anybody would say. That's a picture of, you know, one day in Bombay is like your 100 years on the earth. And 25 years in Bangalore is like eternity. What are you going to live for? You'd call that man a fool if he spent all his money in one day <laughs> and lived as a beggar for 25 years where he settled down. What about this other fool who only thinks of whether he's going to live well on this earth for this period of time and then he's got all eternity. Now, if a person doesn't believe in eternity, then you say, okay, the poor guy doesn't know. What about those people who go to church and say, yeah, I believe in eternity. I believe eternity is much more important than my hundred years on earth. I believe eternity is going to be millions and millions and millions of years. It's much more than a hundred years on earth. I say, listen, are you preparing for it? Are you concerned about how you're going to be in there? You say, so long as I get to Bangalore, it's enough. But doesn't it matter how you live in Bangalore? You want to live in Bangalore like a beggar? Or is it enough to say, so long as I get to heaven, it is enough? Really? That's like this man saying, so long as I get to Bangalore, it's enough. But you're going to live like a beggar there. Many people don't realize that. You'd call such a man a fool. I don't think a man who's earned so much money would ever be a fool like that. He'd rather live with a lot of self-denial for that one day in Bombay so that he can live comfortably for the rest of his life. Dear brothers and sisters, that's what I mean. When Jesus said, uh, when somebody came to him and said, I want you to turn to Matthew 22, to this question somebody asked him. Somebody came to Jesus and asked him, a Jewish person. Now, the Jews had two great commandments. One was, keep the Sabbath. Don't do any work on the Sabbath day. Don't even get healed on the Sabbath day. The second was, pay your tithe. Just like in today's churches also. Come to church on Sunday, never forget that, and give 10% of your income to God. It's Old Testament. That's what the Jews live for. So they came to Jesus in Matthew 22 and verse 36 and asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I want to find out what he thinks. And Jesus didn't talk about Sabbath or tithe. He said the great commandment in the law is to love God, verse 37, with all your heart, with all your soul, that is your feelings and emotion and mind and will that's all your soul and with all your mind with your whole personality to love God every part of your being is saturated with love for God and Jesus said if you love me you'll keep my commandments it's not emotion it's not in a time of praise and worship we discover whether we love God or not Jesus said if you love me you'll keep my commandments it's in the daily life my life proves that I love God more than anything on this earth But he said, I can't give you just one commandment. It's like a coin. A coin which has only got one side is a fake. 
I have to tell you what's in the other side of the coin, and that is, verse 39, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, if you put these two, like two nails on the wall, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as you love yourself, on these two commandments, verse 40, you can hang the whole Bible. The phrase, the law and the prophets, is an expression for the Old Testament. You can hang the whole Old Testament, all those multitudes of verses, 20, 25,000 verses in the Old Testament, all of them you can hang on these two nails. You don't need anything else. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, that's it. And that's what they could not do in the Old Testament. They tried. See, let's, you know, the Bible says if you don't, if you don't love your fellow believer, you cannot love God. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 4. It's the last verse. So, the test of whether I love God is that I love my fellow believer or I love others. Would you sexually lust after someone you love? I mean, you wouldn't lust after your daughter. You wouldn't want your daughter to be stripped like all these people who watch pornography. I said, what about if that is your sister who's taking off her clothes to get some money or your daughter? Would you want it? I said, no, 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 no. But that's somebody else's sister or daughter. I couldn't care less for them. So people pay money to watch this evil pornography which has ruined so many people and sent millions to hell. You, you cannot do it if you love. You, if you really love, you will not get angry and do something that will harm another person. Impossible. That's why Jesus said the whole commandment of God hangs on. That's the, those, the two arms of the cross teach that. Love for God and love for one another. And that is the standard by which I must always examine myself. Not whether I'm going to church, whether I'm giving some money there, am I reading the Bible every day, all that is good. Am I uh, forgiving others, also good. But that forgiveness must come from love, the root from which it comes. It's not, I forgive my, my brothers because I want to go to heaven. No. That's selfish. Oh, I heard in the meeting that if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you, then you can't go to heaven. You want to forgive others because you want to go to heaven? That's an utterly selfish motive. Motive is the important thing in our actions. It's like the root. Don't just cleanse the outside. You know, in the olden days before antibiotics were discovered, if uh, somebody had a sickness on his hand, they'd take an ointment and rub it, it would go. But then it would come on the other hand. You've got to keep that tube of ointment with you all. It'll come on your leg, it'll come on your back, all over. But one day somebody discovered an antibiotic, which you don't rub on your sore, you put it inside and hit the root of that disease, and the thing disappears. So it's the root that Jesus came to deal with. John the Baptist preached that Jesus has come with an axe to the root of the tree. The law was only a pair of scissors that cut off the fruit, you know, don't commit murder. If you commit, I'll punish you. Don't commit adultery. If you commit, I'll punish you. But he didn't deal with the root of the problem. So Jesus said, I've come to deal with the root of the problem. It's because you don't love God. It's because you don't love others as yourself. That's why you do all these sins. Every sin in the world is committed because of disobedience to these two laws. Love for God and love for one another. 
So if I don't deal with this root of the problem, I can do so many external things as a Christian and think I'm a wonderful Christian. I'm just fooling myself and fooling other people. And one day I'll discover when I stand before the Lord that I never allowed the Holy Spirit to deal with the root of it. So once we see God's standard, we see that it's impossible to attain it. That's why what you read in the Sermon on the Mount was never preached by Moses in the Old Testament. You know, there was no, the Ten Commandments, the, the, there was no other commandment saying, thou shalt not murder, next thou shalt not get angry, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lust after the woman. That's not there. Because God knew they couldn't keep it. You don't give problems on calculus to a second grade student. He can't do it. So God didn't give these commandments to people in the Old Testament. But now, He's given us the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, to whom more is given, more will be required. I've seen lots of people who want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, brother, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, really? Do you know that to whom more is given, more will be required? If you live under the law, God will not ask for much. But once you are filled with the Holy Spirit, once you ask Jesus Christ to come and be Lord of your life, boy, to whom more is given, more will be required. In, in fact, the Apostle uh, James, James says in James in chapter 3, he says, many of you have got a great lust to become teachers of God's word. It's good to be a teacher of God's word because you can bless hundreds and thousands of people if God, even with a little bit of gift of the word of God, the number of people you can bless is amazing. But he says, remember this, James 3 verse 1, if you become a teacher of God's word, you will be judged by a much higher standard, a much stricter judgment, because God's given you so much. I mean, it's like if a company gives a man a hundred dollars to spend for the company and he gives another man a million dollars to spend for the company well when they come back he's going to expect much more from the one whom he gave a million for the company everything was given for the sake of the company what did you do with this million dollars we asked you to spend for the company this guy has only got to answer for a hundred dollars this guy's got to produce bills for a million it's something like that to whom more is given more is required and I believe that those of you who come to this church are hearing such a lot of truth which in many another church you won't hear. You can say, boy, I'm learning a lot of new things. Yeah, praise the Lord. But you're also increasing your responsibility before God. I've said that publicly in my church in Bangalore. I said, if you're not interested in obeying God's word, I would recommend that you don't come to this church. Go to one of those other churches where they don't preach, a, don't preach such a high standard. You may go to hell, but at least you won't be judged for disobeying God's word because you never heard it. It's a wonderful privilege to know all of God's truth. It's like going to the best hospital in town, which has got a guaranteed 100% success rate for healing every disease. Wouldn't you like to be go to such a hospital, especially if the treatment is free? No offerings, no collection. Guaranteed cure for every sickness. But you've got to take the prescription that the doctor gives. You have to follow the course of treatment the doctor prescribes. Then the guaranteed cure is guaranteed. Every person who gets into that hospital is cured. 
and the treatment is free. Who would not want to go to such a hospital? And there are always beds available. It's like that, a church that proclaims the whole truth of God. But people don't want it because like Jesus said, men love darkness more than they love light because their deeds are evil. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3, we read, this is the great chapter where it says about God so loved the world, verse 16, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And He goes on to say here, Verse 19, it's a little after that, 16 is this verse I quoted. He who believes is saved, and he who believes does not believe is condemned. Now, verse 19, this is the judgment. What is the judgment? That light has already come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's a very important passage. Why do men reject Christianity? And if they do accept Christianity, why do they go to some third-rate church that does not preach the high standards of the Sermon on the Mount and the standards that Jesus preached? Because their deeds are evil. They don't want the light. They want a dim 5-watt light. Because not much will be exposed with a 5-watt light. They don't want a brilliant 3,000-watt light that will expose everything in their life. No, they don't want that. See, no thief loves the light. A man who is committing adultery does not love the light. They all love darkness. All sin is committed in darkness. They love the darkness because their deeds were evil. And now I want you to see this contrast in verse 20 and 21. Please follow with me in John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light because he's afraid that his deeds will be exposed. Now what should the opposite of that? Don't look at verse 21, but look at verse 20. Tell me the opposite of that. Those who do evil hate the light. So who's the one who loves the light? It should be One who does good. Isn't it? That's the contrast. He who does evil, verse 20, hates the light. So he who does good will come to the light. Loves the light. But that's not what it says. In verse 21, the contrast is not between evil and good. Who's the one who doesn't come to the light? Verse 20, the one who does evil. Who's the one who comes to the light? Verse 21, not the one who does good. Why? Because there's no one who can do good perfectly. So if the if the opposite of evil is good, and it is written in verse 21, he who does good comes to the light, then none of us qualify. We'll never be able to come to the light. But the requirement is so low. He who speaks the truth, practices the truth. The truth is being honest. I could paraphrase it like this. He who is honest will come to the light. Do you know that even a prostitute can be honest? Yes, Lord, I'm a prostitute. Have mercy on me. She's honest. She can come to the light. But a person who's got secret sin, 
even if externally he is very righteous, he will not come to the light because his deeds are evil. A thief can come to the light. Like the Samaritan woman who was divorced five times and sleeping with some man who is not her husband, she could come to Jesus' presence and Jesus could forgive her. Not only forgive her, use her as his witness to bring other people in Samaria to Christ. It's amazing. What did she qualify? Was she good? No. She was honest. The woman caught in adultery, was she good? No. She was honest. Lord, it's true. I'm guilty. What about the thief on the cross who had murdered so many people and made so many widows in his life and made so many children orphans? What did he have? What did qualify him to enter paradise? Honesty. Absolute honesty. And what is it that sent the other fellow to hell? Two thieves equally evil, murdered people, stole money, and the Roman government says these fellows are not fit for just 20 years in, pr- in prison. They are to be hanged today, we'd say. They must go to the electric chair. They must be crucified those days. The worst of the worst. And among the worst of the worst, one goes to hell, the other goes to heaven. What is it that made the difference? Only one thing. One man loved the truth and was honest about it. Lord, I'm guilty. I don't blame my parents for the way I was brought up. I don't blame the bad company that led me astray. I don't blame the police who caught me or the judge who sentenced me. 100% the blame is with me. The Lord says, really? You really believe? You are the one at fault, 100%? Well, come to paradise today. He said, Lord, when your kingdom comes, please remember me. And the Lord says, no, that will take 2,000 years. I'm not going to, don't have to wait till then. Today you can come to paradise with me because you're honest. Because you're the opposite of Adam who had to be kicked out of paradise. Because when God asked him, did you do this? He blamed his wife. Not me, Lord. He not only blamed his wife. Do you, know what he, do you remember what he said to God? Adam, did you eat of that tree? Lord, this woman whom you gave me, don't forget, that's the cause of all the problem. She's the cause of the problem, but the problem started with you. You gave such a woman to me. I've heard men talk like that about their wives, and wives talk like that about their husband. This man whom I married, or this woman whom I married, that's that's why I can't be spiritual. (laughs) That's exactly what Adam said, and he got kicked out of paradise for saying that. And anybody who says that today will also be kicked out of paradise. But when a, when a person says, I don't blame anybody else, Lord. It's me. 100% it's me. The Lord says, you qualify for paradise today. He who loves the truth comes to the light, practices the truth. Very, very important. What does God ask of us? Walk in the light. And you know what that means? In very simple terms. God loves honest people. Some time ago, I preached about 10 years ago, when I had been born again for 50 years, now it's 60. I preached a sermon saying, what the Lord has taught me in 50 years. 16 things the Lord has taught me in 50 years. Uh, We said one of those little booklets there at the back as well. And... uh, it's also on the internet. 
But in those 16 things I listed, number one was God loves honest people. That's the number one thing I learned in 50 years and now in 60 years. God loves honest people. And I want to say to everyone sitting here, if you will be ruthlessly honest, ruthlessly honest means be absolutely honest about those things which you are ashamed of. I'm not saying honest with men, honest with God. Be absolutely honest and don't try to cover up and don't make excuses. Don't blame your wife and say she did this so that's why I'm like this. No. Be absolutely honest. Lord, my flesh is so corrupt and evil. See, the world knows of these terrible terrorists like Osama bin Laden has got a name for being a evil terrorist. You know what I told the Lord once? Lord, my flesh is exactly the same as Osama bin Laden's. No difference. Unfortunately, he did not have a little God-fearing upbringing like I had. But my flesh is the same. He was born of Adam, I am born of Adam. Whatever he did, I am also capable of. I said that to the Lord. I am capable of every evil that the worst man in the world could ever do because we both came from Adam. And if I haven't done it, I don't take any credit for it. It's because of my upbringing or your restraint upon me. And therefore, I do not compare myself with any human being saying I'm better than them. I'm not. That's why I can say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. If you see your flesh, the corruption in your flesh, I mean, we cover it up and paint it and all, make it look nice. But if you love the truth, practice the truth, you'll come into the light. And I tell you, there'll be tremendous deliverance in your life if you just practice honesty, ruthless honesty about yourself. Lord, you know, supposing you say something and you know it was wrong. I've seen this even with believers. I ask a brother, why did you do that? Or why did you speak like that? And he'll say, because of this, because of this. And he, he justifies himself in so many ways. I say, there's no hope for this guy. No hope. On the other hand, I ask a similar question to another person. He says, Brother Jack, that was 100% my fault. I say, Brother, you're a man after my own heart. You will rise to great heights in God's kingdom. Because you don't justify yourself. Have you seen the times when you got angry with somebody that you always justified yourself? There was a reason for it. I noticed this in Bible translations. In Matthew chapter 5, it says in verse 22, Matthew 5, 22, It's a very strong verse. I say to you that everyone, no exception, everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty. Do you know what that it says in the King James Version? I don't know who added it. But the King James Version says, if every, anyone who is angry without a reason will be guilty. 
Let me ask you, those of you who got a wild temper, answer this question. Have you ever been guilty without a reason? You must be mad to get guilty without a reason. Always there's a reason. Somebody provoked you, somebody did something. So with that one little phrase, without a reason, you have escaped. What a clever little phrase the devil put into that translation. He who is guilty without angry without a reason. <laughs> There's no not even Osama bin Laden is guilty according to that. He had a reason why he blew up the Twin Towers. NASB is accurate. He who is angry with his brother shall be guilty. It's because I love myself that I am angry. And when I learn to hate myself and be a disciple and love Jesus, I won't be angry with my brother from anything within me. I'll be furious like Jesus was with people who make money in the name of religion in the temple and take a whip and drive them out. But there I'm not angry because they did anything against me, but because they touched the glory of God. Dear brothers and sisters, learn to be honest. God has got great plans for your life. I want to tell you, love Him and love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive those who hurt you. And ask yourself, do I love that person like Jesus loved me? Am I willing to forgive that person like Jesus forgave me? If not, work out your salvation. Let's close with this verse in Philippians and chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12 and 13. Great verses. So then, my beloved brothers and sisters, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Just as you have always obeyed me in my presence, now obey me when I am not with you. What should you do? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever taken that verse seriously? It means obey God's commandments, which you just read, for example, overcome anger, overcome dirty thoughts. With fear and trembling, Lord, if I continue like this, you will judge me. With fear and trembling, work out. That's your responsibility to work out your salvation. But you're not alone in this. Because, verse 13, God is at work inside you through the Holy Spirit to make you desire His will and to do His will. Aha. Uh-huh. It's like a company telling a man, I want you to go to that factory and get all this equipment worth a million dollars. Go. But before you go, here's a check for a million dollars. Ah, then it's easy. But if you go without the check, <laughs> you got to work and earn that money. That's what a lot of people think. The Christian life is so tough. God asked me to go and get a billion dollars worth of stuff and I have to earn all that. No, you don't have to, brother. He gives you a check for a billion dollars. He will not ask you to buy something for him, for the company, without giving you a check for it. That's the meaning here. He asks you to come to a certain standard. He'll give you the power to live by that standard. If he asks you to overcome anger and sexual lust and telling lies and all, he'll give you the power. He will not send you to do something without giving you the ability. It is God who is at work in you, both to desire his will and to do his will. That is the meaning of he will write his law in your mind, that is to desire his will, and he will write his law in your heart, 
which means to do His will. That's what it says in Hebrews 8.11. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. In the new covenant, I will write my law in your mind. That means I'll give you a desire to do my will. And then I'll, that's not enough. I'll write my law in your heart so that you actually do it. Praise the Lord for such a wonderful gospel. Many have not understood it fully. They don't realize that the Holy Spirit not only gives us a desire to do His will, but will give us the ability to do it. You cannot do it on your own. Be like the disciples who fish all night and catch nothing. But if you come to the end of your life, end of your ability, and say, Lord, I cannot do it on my own. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not to speak in tongues, but to obey you, to do your will. God will give it to you. Like they cast the net on the other side, the whole fish, the net was full of fish. That's, that's what can happen in your life. It's a wonderful life, the Christian life. And not only in your life, God will use you to serve Him. I want to say to all of you, God wants to use every one of you to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Not just to live this Christian life, but to share it with others. The tremendous blessing it is to bless others. Can you imagine if you, if God can use you to save one soul from hell? That guy will be thankful to you for all eternity in heaven. One person. One person you showed the right path. One person whom you taught to love instead of hate. One person whom you taught to forgive those who did harm to him. He'll thank you for all eternity. Learn it, my brothers, sisters, and teach others that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you'll make these truths real to each of us in our lives. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.